Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And on today's show, we are going to share with you an interview that I did with Matt Lieberman, a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate. For months now, he has been the only Democrat in the race to replace Johnny Isaacson in the Senate when that seat was vacated upon Isaacson's retirement at the end of 2019. And Lieberman sits in a very interesting position in this race, because this race will be conducted in the form of a jungle primary election on general election day in November of 2020. And because it's a jungle primary, it would be to the interest of both Democrats and Republicans to unite around one standard bearer for their party in that election. Lieberman has been in this race since early October, but at least as of now, reporting indicates that he is not the Democrats' chosen candidate for this seat. However, he's the only candidate that's been in it, and he's raised $700,000 for his bid since the early months of his campaign. So in this interview, I talked with Matt about the possibility that he could earn the Democratic Party's backing in this race. And we also talked about some of the issues that have gripped Washington in the last few weeks, including a strike ordered by President Trump that killed a top Iranian military commander and the fallout from that action, as well as an effort in Congress to impeach President Trump. Plus, we get Matt's views on some of the top policy debates within the Democratic Party. So without any further delay, I will turn it over to our conversation with Matt Lieberman, a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate. Joining the podcast is Matt Lieberman, a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate. He is running in that jungle primary for the seat held on an interim basis by Senator Kelly Leffler. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Kyle. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. So as far as I'm aware, this is your first race for public office, but you have a name that people might recognize as your dad was a former U.S. senator from Connecticut, and he was also Al Gore's running mate in the 2000 election. But I think for Georgia voters who may not be familiar with you, I think this is a good chance to get to know you. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you're running for the U.S. Senate? Absolutely. Like most Georgians uh, who uh, certainly in the wider metro area and and, uh, probably almost half Georgians overall. I'm a Georgian by choice. I moved here 15 years ago for a job, as as so many people do, and uh, have loved it here and have settled here. I lived the first 36 years of my life in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, went to college and law school there. And I uh, actually loved law school, but didn't think I would practice law and have managed almost entirely to avoid it. Um, and the, the first part of my career was in education. Um, and right after law school, I worked in the public school system up in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, in an urban area, <clears throat> running a program called I Have a Dream there. And then I taught and coached at my old high school. Um, and I came here to be the head of uh, one of the Jewish elementary schools in Atlanta, a K through eight, 450 student school. So that's the, the first part of my career is in education. And since then, I started a small business in the insurance benefits uh, world, helping companies try to put together the best insurance packages that they could for their employees. And um, politics, I, yeah, I grew up in politics. You know, I, I think I am kind of a combination of someone who knows politics from the inside. I was very involved, uh, worked full-time on my dad's two national campaigns, um, both Gore Lieberman and then when he ran for president in 03-04 and 
you know, spoke on his behalf all over the country, ranging everywhere from, you know, reading stories to kindergartners to speaking in front of a couple thousand people and appearing on national TV. And so I, I know what it's about, but I really, until relatively recently, didn't see it as as a pursuit for me. I was focused on, you know, raising my two daughters, um, growing my business, and being a private citizen, really. And uh, frankly, the government and this president are just such a kick in the gut uh, on a daily basis. And this Senate under Mitch McConnell is a disaster and by intent gets nothing done. And I'm just fed up. And I know a lot of other people are fed up. And um, I feel like I can do a better job for my fellow Georgians, uh, certainly than Kelly Leffler and then uh, anyone else who would be out there. I feel like I have a good combination of an insider background, but not someone who has spent his career you know, as a politician. I spent my career as a person. Uh, and I think sometimes people spend a lot of too much time in politics. They, they actually stop thinking and acting like regular people do. So that's that's a bit about me. And I'm excited and we can win. Democrats can flip this seat. They can flip the other seat. It, it's an extremely exciting time to be a Democrat in Georgia. So let's dive in here with two of the most pressing issues that are facing Washington at this point. So a week ago, President Trump ordered an airstrike that killed a top Iranian military official, significantly escalating tensions between the U.S. and Iran. Since the strike, Iran has formally announced that it will no longer comply with terms of the 2015 nuclear deal and launched missiles at two U.S. military targets in Iraq. But at this time, the conflict appears to have calmed when President Trump decided not to retaliate against Iran for those missile attacks. What in what is your view of the foreign policy objectives that are being pursued by the Trump administration with regards to its actions in Iran over the last few weeks and last few months? Yeah, well, you know, I think it is uh, a good thing that uh, the American military took out Soleimani and and uh, the other uh, man who was with him, uh, who who goes by the moniker, went by the moniker of Abu Mahdi. You know, look, Soleimani in particular has the blood of five or six hundred American uh, Americans on his hand uh, through his training and supplying of. Um, the killers that killed our soldiers, and not to mention probably five or 600,000 Syrians' uh, deaths also uh, supported, encouraged, financed by this uh, Iranian mastermind, so-called mastermind. It is not a good thing for the world or any decent people, people who love freedom, who value humanity, to have someone like that acting with impunity. And I, I do believe he was brought to justice uh, with that strike, I am, I am extremely happy that uh, there were no losses of life of our military, and I'm happy that the Iranians did not retaliate beyond what they did, and I'm happy that Trump hasn't tried to stir things up. I would say this: if I were in the United States Senate today, I would absolutely be right there with my Democratic colleagues saying that Trump cannot expand this act into something more than an isolated act without getting authority from the Congress. It is Congress's constitutional power to declare war. Uh, ultimately, it's, it's Congress's constitutional power to fund whatever's going on. This president you know, is, I think, the most emotionally 
unstable person we've had uh, in the White House maybe ever. And so I think it's particularly important that he be hedged in by the boundaries that the Constitution sets up. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the, the action worked. Um, I would not give this president, you know, another inch of leash uh, to do stuff without consulting with Congress. What, in your view, should be the ultimate goal of the American foreign policy in Iran? And do you feel like Soleimani's killing contributes to that policy or temporarily takes away from it? How does this action fit into, in your view, what the broader strategy should be? Yeah, well, again, I think it it sends a message that the world's worst criminal countries and uh, the worst leading criminals within those countries cannot act with impunity. And that ultimately leads to a safer world because it ultimately makes these countries uh, and these sort of power centers within these countries think twice, think three times before they undertake massive murderous campaigns. So, and, and you know, we also need to bear in mind that President Obama quite effectively and, and repeatedly um, authorized these types of drone attacks to eliminate the particular menaces of particular people or small groups of people. It, it's just, it's a more effective, ultimately more humane method of achieving a goal um, of neutralizing a particular person. So, you know what, I, I, I don't, I think this administration is uh, particularly inept at setting out a strategy. I don't know what their overall strategy is, uh, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's uh, trade policy, economic policy, this guy's all over the place. So I'm not going to guess at that. But you know what I can say just in a more narrow sense is that is that stopping the worst people, the worst actors in the world from acting uh, without any repercussions um, is a good thing. And if we can accomplish it in a way that doesn't cause a, uh, a much larger problem, and I'm hopeful, I pray that we've done that here. So let's move on here to impeachment. For most of the fall, Congress was consumed by an effort to impeach President Trump after a whistleblower report uncovered that Trump attempted to condition military aid for Ukraine on that country, launching an investigation into Joe Biden and his son Hunter. In December, the House passed two articles of impeachment that are likely to be in the Senate for consideration soon. If you were in the Senate today, would you vote to convict President Trump on those two articles that passed the House? Uh, you know, well, you know, truly, it, it would be, in my view, my sworn uh, responsibility to listen to the evidence that was presented. Um, so I'm not going to give you a direct answer on that. I will say that I think it's completely appropriate that he was impeached. I think uh, the acts that he um, has undertaken and that have been uh, revealed in detail are worse, a greater abuse of presidential power than what Nixon did uh, in Watergate, and certainly a greater abuse, very different kind of abuse, uh, but a presidential power than what Clinton did when he was um, impeached. Bottom line, as we all know politically, it's unlikely that the Senate is going to vote by the necessary numbers to convict and remove him from office. Um, I, I will say that in some ways, I think the greatest and most stinging rebuke to Trump would be for the people to resoundingly remove him from office. And I hope 
very much that that happens. Um, you know, I, I, I am not a fan of the president, uh, but if, if I were sitting as a juror in that trial, I would I would in good faith listen to the case presented. Now, posturing by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell suggests that there are unlikely to be witnesses in a Senate trial, at least that appears to be his position at this time. Do you believe that additional witnesses should testify in a Senate trial on the impeachment articles? I do. I think that would be uh, that would be preferable. Again, you know, to some extent at this point, given the political reality, we're going through a charade uh, because I just don't think that you're going to get two thirds of the senators to vote to to remove him from office. So ultimately, I'm not that hung up on this uh, because I almost feel like the conclusion of this drama is foreordained. And I think the more pressing drama will occur on Election Day. And we've got to get rid of this guy um, because he uh, again, I, I feel like he disgraces almost everything that is great about America. And I think he's doing by and large, a not good job, you know, even aside from acting like an idiot. So that is where sort of my heart and soul and energy is focused uh, more than how this particular trial show plays out in the Senate. Because again, I I just think it's almost impossible for it to result in his removal. So within the party, Democrats are currently debating the future of healthcare policy, and differences largely fall along the line of whether people support tweaks to the existing, mostly private health insurance system, or whether people support a publicly funded single-payer Medicare for All plan. You told the AJC when you launched your campaign that you support a public option plan that would presumably compete with private health plans rather than institute a government-funded single-payer healthcare plan. Why is that the right path forward for healthcare policy in this country? Yeah, because um, you know I, I think, though um, imperfect, uh, as almost all uh, large legislation or any legislation is, uh, the Affordable Care Act has worked to ensure coverage for everyone despite pre-existing conditions, to uh, extend the opportunity to obtain coverage to people who otherwise just w- would be locked out because they're not in a group plan or because of a pre-existing condition. Uh, it's created subsidies to help those who need the most help so they can afford that insurance. It's But for a lot of people who aren't uh, very poor, uh, you know, it's still hard to afford coverage through the exchange. I actually have my insurance through the through Obamacare, uh, and it's not cheap. And I mean, you know, my coverage is crappy, frankly. It's it's bare bones, but, you know, that's it's something. And uh, and without the Affordable Care Act, I, I'm not sure it would be a lot harder as as a, sort of a sole proprietor. It would be harder to get coverage. We need to expand it and improve it. And I think the best way to do that is adding a public option uh, like you described. And um, look, I think generally speaking, it's just it, it makes the most sense to take one really good constructive step at a time. And when when the Affordable Care Act pact passed, that was a great constructive, huge constructive step forward. I think the next logical one is adding the public option, which creates pricing competition for the private market, you know, from uh, from the government side of, of the uh, the offerings. And, you know, health health insurance, health care in this country is massive. I mean, it, by some accounts, it, it, it uh, signifies something like a sixth, one sixth of the overall economy, millions of jobs, extremely complex. 
to me, the notion that you can take something that big and change it that radically in just you know a, a couple of years, to me, it's it's just it's a form of hubris. I, I don't. I, it, when you take something that big, spin it around, and it lands back down on the ground, to me, it just seems very likely things are going to break. Things aren't going to work. To me, it makes sense to take one good step at a time, see where we are, see what we need to fix, and see what makes sense as the next good step. And we can get there. We'll get to where that sweet spot's going to be. But I don't think we know where that sweet spot's going to be until we uh, approach it, you know, one good step at a time. Another issue that is the subject of vigorous debate within the Democratic Party is the issue of climate change. And as we enter 2020, estimates from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change suggest that we may have as little as 10 or 11 years to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. So in your view, what should Congress do to address climate change? Yeah, well, you know, I, I absolutely think we should get uh, back into the um, Paris Accord. Uh, and you know, beyond that, we should adopt uh, a policy that commits us to, as a country, to achieving net zero emissions by uh, by 2050 and to meet meaningful um, sort of threshold markers uh, along the way. And as you know, the government should do what it what it can do to uh, through through um, prudent regulation uh, and through incentivizing, continuing to incentivize the development of uh, of green technologies, the government should do what it can do uh, in that regard. And you know, it'd be beyond climate. I went to law school. I have I have uh, a good friend of mine uh, is in a significant position at the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. You know, a lot of the people at the EPA. Uh, they're not doing too much nowadays uh, because there's there's not a lot of environmental protection going on, and and it's it's because of uh, really a, an over the top anti regulation attitude that's coming down from the White House. Look, I, I don't think we should have more regulation than we need, but we need some regulation, and there are you know companies will pollute, uh, will do damage to the environment uh, if there's not a cop on the beat. That's just that's just human nature, frankly. And the government needs to be there to draw a line and say, no, you know, these are the rules and you can't go past that and protect our environment, protect our health, the air we breathe, the water we drink. And, um, and under Trump, uh, that has completely fallen by the wayside. And, um, you know, we, we need our government agencies to actually do something uh, that they're supposed to do. So at least as it stands today, there's unlikely to be significant Republican support for either a public option health care plan or aggressive action on climate change that would meet the kind of thresholds that you're discussing here. Under current Senate rules, any comprehensive action on either of these policy issues is going to require 60 votes in the U.S. Senate to pass. Do you think that the next Democratic majority in the Senate should eliminate the filibuster and pass bills with 51 votes? You know, I would be open to proposals that might curtail uh, the areas in which filibuster can be exercised. Um, you know, for, for example, you have some areas related to um, uh, judges where, you know, now it's uh, the rule doesn't apply. Overall, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't in a cross the board way change the filibuster rule uh, at this point, I think. Um, uh, it's lasted a long time. I think ultimately the problem 
isn't the rule, it's the cast of characters um, that we've got in Washington, and particularly these Republicans uh, who have been so, so obstructionist. Uh, and, and I think also, you know, it, it's democracy is self-correcting. The people will eventually uh, sort this out. And, you know, I think what we have now in the country and frankly in Georgia, even to a greater extent, is a disconnect a dramatic disconnect between where the Republican Party is and where most of us are. And, and that disconnect exists on issues like climate change, where, you know, in Georgia, you know, a huge majority of folks feel climate change is real and we should be doing more about it. And, you know, there's only so long that uh, Republican members of the government will be able to stand up to a public that has a very different point of view than they do. And, you know, this election coming up in November is a chance for people to say, you know, enough, enough of this. You're not representing us. We want people there who represent us. And, you know, bottom line, that's what I'm aiming to do. That's what I'm aiming to do. People are fed up. I'm fed up. We need, we need leadership that is connected to our daily lives and the things that we value and our priorities. And we don't have it in Georgia. We don't have it nationally, but we really don't have it in Georgia. And democracy can correct that on its own if the people get out and vote. It's probably no secret to you that the structure of this race, the fact that it is a jungle primary in November, means that Democrats may be advantaged by uniting behind one Democratic candidate and that the party at a national level and a state level is considering that process and considering uniting behind one candidate. Have you had discussions with Democrats at either the Georgia or the national level about being the candidate that has the formal backing of the party in the jungle primary? Yeah, so you know, my sense is that the party, both in the jungle primary and in uh, the regular primary going on in the race for the other Senate seat, is really taking a wait-and-see um, stance and uh, a stance of neutrality at this point, I would love to have everyone's support. Um, uh, I can absolutely see how it would behoove us to rally behind one candidate. One thing that I feel great about is that I've been out there busting my butt doing what you need to do to be ready to win a U.S. Senate seat over the last three, four months, which is you know raise money, start organizing. We raised $700,000 uh, in my first quarter in the race, which uh, stacks up extremely well uh, against other statewide campaigns in recent Georgia history and also against comparable campaigns nationally. So I'm, all I can do is what, what I can do day in, day out to, to be ready to win. Uh, I'll note, actually, that I think just this morning there was a news item that Ed Tarver from Columbus, Georgia, is planning to enter the race that I'm in. So the, it may be that um, it's just going to be sort of like it is in the the primary for the other race, that there are a number of candidates in there. And uh, and we'll all do our best, and the people will decide. And you are committed to this race, even if the party backs another, a different candidate that enters this race later? Yes, yes. Um, so you are a formal edu- you are a former educator, as you described for us in the beginning here, and and you noted on your website that that experience has left you frustrated with the lack of action on gun reforms in Washington. So, what gun reforms would you support in the U.S. Senate? Yeah, for sure. Look, you know, when I was uh, when I was um, the head of the elementary school, 450 kids and their families, and 100 plus staff 
uh, here in Atlanta. It was during the time when the lockdowns, the lockdown protocols started to be introduced. Uh, it was during the time that the Virginia Tech shooting occurred, and there had also been some anti-Semitic incidents uh, around here. And the uh, the Atlanta Jewish Federation brought on a full-time security consultant. We went through all these protocols and. You know, well, we've all done fire drills, and uh, you know, as a kid, you kind of look forward to the nice waste of time when you get to walk outside and stand in a line for a while, at least if it's not so cold or so hot. Lockdown drills are an entirely different thing, and to see kids, uh, you know, learning, you know, what you do, the doors closed, the 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 blind is drawn, you know, sitting quietly, uh, it's an awful thing. Kids shouldn't have to deal with that. Um, that should not be a part of growing up. And you know, while while government can't cure every problem, this is a situation where it's just staring us right in the face what we can do, which is, you know, let's ban going forward, let's ban these military style assault weapons. You know, civilians don't need those. Let's have um universal background checks to make sure that uh the guns that are out there legally being sold are are being sold to people who should be able to buy a gun. You know, let, let's let's look at voluntary buybacks. I'm sorry, I'd never I would never be for mandatory buybacks. It strikes me as as confiscatory and un-American. It just has a bad feeling to me. But if people are willing to give up um, assault rifles, if the government will pay them a fair price, let's get those off the street. But you know these are all things, and if, even if we just started with universal background checks, which is something the public supports probably 90, 95%, that would be a huge step. But the Republican Senate won't let it happen. It's, it's just as simple as that. And Trump doesn't have uh, the guts to um, give Mitch McConnell the cover to push it forward. It's why we need, it's just maybe the most graphic example of how our country becomes safer and better if we get rid of Trump and if we flip the Senate to Democratic control, and I want to be part of that. So you've noted that you will protect Roe v. Wade in an era where President Trump's judicial nominees threaten access to abortion services in this country. But for people with low incomes, access to abortion services is already curtailed by a policy known as the Hyde Amendment that prohibits Medicaid funding going to cover abortion services. Would you support legislative action to repeal that amendment and allow Medicaid coverage to pay for abortion services? Yes, I would. You know, I think, uh, you know, women have a right protected by the Constitution um, and Roe v. Wade to get an abortion if they choose that within the parameters set out by that decision. And I don't think that right should be conditioned on ability to pay. Um, and last question here for you. What is your view of the state of the American economy for the average worker in 2020? What do you think are some of the most pressing economic problems that we face? And what policies would you embrace to address those problems? Uh, well, you know, hey, that's it's a big one. And look, you know, there are things you can do to stimulate the economy. One of them is tax cuts. One of them is spending. You know, I think we have an economy now that uh, most expert economists would tell you is around a 50-50 bet to be in recession by uh, election day. Um, we have an economy where despite strong employment, you know, a lot of those jobs 
are lousy jobs. A lot of people still need to have a couple jobs to make ends meet. Uh, and despite all that, growth right now is tepid. And so I think what we have is, you know, Trump has uh, jammed through a giveaway largely to uh, corporations and to the wealthiest Americans. Uh, and it hasn't really gotten us any improvement. It's kept the economy, you know, the economy has continued on the trajectory, the kind of slow growth and slowing growth trajectory it was on under President Obama. And so, you know, I think a couple things. I think we need to roll back a portion of the tax cuts that Trump put through for the wealthiest Americans, uh, pare back some of the corporate tax cuts. I think, I think it was to some extent, corporate tax cut was good. Uh, America's corporate tax rates were extremely high compared to the rest of the world. Now uh, they're on the low side. I think we could come more to the middle. These things would open up uh, revenue uh, to do a couple things. One, to uh, preserve tax cuts for middle-class Americans. Uh, two, to invest in people and programs that will open up the American dream to more people. Income inequality, without a doubt, is a big, big issue. And I think it's an issue, it's real, and it gnaws at really what the guts of the American promise is. It, right now, it is way easier to go from, let's say, being worth $10 million to being worth $20 million. That's way easier than it is, you know, to go from an income of 40,000 a year to an income of 60,000 a year. It's way easier to sort of make it from the tip top to the tip tippity top than it is to make it from the bottom just up the first step of the ladder. And, uh, and that's counter to the American promise. We wanna be an opportunity society. So I think programs that invest in uh, people and communities, urban and rural, that are suffering uh, through uh, incentivizing entrepreneurship, development, better pre-K uh, programs um, for, for all, investment in uh, college students, and people post-secondary. You know, I think when you talk about the American dream, Part of that is, uh, obviously, you want to be able to get a good job. You want to be able to support yourself, have a good life. We have public high schools in this country. I, I think we don't have them just to keep kids off the street. We have them, and they're free, because at some point in the beginning of the 20th century, we as a country decided that it's worth investing in our future by making education through high school affordable uh, for all. And I think the reality now is that to be a productive member of society, be able to support yourself and a family, it takes more than a high school education. It takes, whether it's college, whether it's community technical school, something like that. Uh, we, we don't want to send generations. We don't want to discourage generations from trying to climb up the, the ladder of opportunity. And uh, once people have done well, we don't want them to be saddled with so much debt that they actually can't make any headway. So yeah, I think there are things we can do. I don't know the exact formula to help with student loan debt to provide um, credits to encourage people to pursue a higher education of some, of some sort, post-secondary education. 
because you know this income inequality problem isn't gonna isn't gonna go away overnight. I don't think the answer is to make it harder or uh, to punish people who've done very well. I think the answer is to make it easier and encourage people who want to do better. Uh, and there are things we can do that we're not doing. So we've covered a lot of ground today on really pressing policy issues. But are there any other issues you'd like to cover before we go today? Yeah, look, again, you know, I'm, I'm um, most of the last 20 years of my life, again, I've been in education, uh, started a business. I'm connected with that reality that is reality that I think, you know, a lot of Georgians are connected with. I've been the primary solo parent for my two daughters who are wonderful and now college age. And that's another sort of reality that people live day in, day out, uh, worrying, uh, loving, worrying about your kids, uh, celebrating their successes, helping them through the tough spots, sort of living all the challenges of this culture that we share. And seeing the government do as poorly as it's doing uh, is intolerable. And like I said, I'm fed up. I'm just fed up. And and I think other people are fed up with me. And we have an opportunity this year in Georgia. First time probably in two decades that the political math actually works for Democrats to be elected. And by happy, perhaps somewhat tragic, but politically happy coincidence, it's exactly the same time that Georgia Republicans could not be further to the right, further out of step, further out of sync with where most of us are. And we deserve we deserve better and we can get it. And really, look, I'm, I'm putting myself out there. Uh, I'm a choice on the menu. And uh, all I can hope is that people will hear me out and uh, consider voting for me. And you know, I'd love to have their votes. All right, Matt. Well, we appreciate you joining the podcast today. If people would like to learn more about your campaign for the U.S. Senate, how could they do that? Uh, they could go to LiebermanForSenate.com and, uh, and if, love to have them get involved. They could reach out to us uh, through the website. All right. Well, Matt Lieberman is a candidate for the U.S. Senate. He is running in that jungle primary where candidates from both parties will compete in one election in November. Matt, we really appreciate you joining the podcast. All right. Thanks a lot, Kyle. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.